All right, everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Got more of a normal show this week after doing kind of a short weigh-in last week. Uh, author of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is my guest. Uh, we had a good talk the other day about her project. It's really, really uh, real fascinating. It's something that everybody, uh, especially these days, everybody should take a look and read. It's in uh, New York Times Magazine. It's online. They also have a podcast, too, 1619 Podcast. Um, it's really worth listening to them. And uh, we talked a lot about the crazy stuff that's going on right now and a lot of the legacy and history of, you know, going back to slavery here in America and the treatment of blacks in America. Lots of historical information, you guys. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff for all of us to learn and to be reminded of in times like this. It's been a crazy week, though. I want to thank everybody for listening to me last week. Um, it was kind of a short show. It was just me weighing in on the whole situation. I appreciate you listening and sharing that. A lot of people shared it and, um, you know, just trying to put my thoughts out there. And it's interesting to watch these protests continue to happen, especially on a global basis that these things are happening around the world. I've just never seen it quite like this. It's really fascinating. So many people, you know, it feels like there's different behavior going on with this. And you know, most of the time when this happens, cause I've covered it before and I'm talking about when there's violence against usually unarmed blacks and police situations that ends in, you know, in death. Um, I've covered this on the nightly show, you know, and op-eds and things like that. And you see people get upset for a while, but I don't think I've seen anything like this. And it feels like we might see some kind of change. And by some kind of change, we may see a whole lot of different types of change. And I hope so. I hope it's not just a passing fad, <laughs> you know? I mean, like, <laughs> like, the, like white people are being very, very nice to me right now. <laughs> very nice. You know, like for me, it makes me a little bit suspicious. I'm like, you don't have to be that overly nice. You're making me suspicious right now. Just calm down. Let's just treat everybody humanely, I think, as a is a good enough thing to do, you know, like Congress, you know, uh, the Democrats, <laughs> which I call the Panda Express, you know, where they, they're proposing the law. I don't, uh, I'm not sure what the thing is, um, exactly, but they're wearing kente cloth. It's like, come on guys, do you have to wear kente cloth? I get it. I know what you're trying to do, but kente cloth is not going to make me feel better. I'm sorry. It's just not. Just pass a good fucking bill. That will make me feel better, you know. Um, but I have to say, oh, by the way, I'm on Bill Maher's show uh, this weekend. If you're listening on Friday, I'm on tonight. Or if you're tuning in another time, it's uh, up on HBO this week, uh, the latest Bill Maher episode. And I was telling Bill, this is my observation, is that, you know, it kind of makes me happy to see that uh, white people are showing the same level of passion for black people that they normally reserve for animals. I think that's a good thing. You know, it's kind of interesting. So all of this stuff is very, very, very fascinating to me. You know, and right now, so we're in this period where it, you know, you feel like the some of the protests, I think, will wind down. But there are some types of protests that will probably keep going. Um, there's a whole defund the police movement that's out right now. The branding of it is getting a lot of criticism, especially when it, 
people were first posting it, hashtag defund the police, hashtag dismantle the police, which is even worse in terms of messaging, I think. But the message behind this, you know, is to put resources where they can be more effective rather than just a bloated police department where police are asked to do too much. In a nutshell, it seems like that. It's weird because this is an election year and it's, I don't know if you can get clarity around this type of movement. I don't know enough about it to weigh in on whether it's a good, good or a bad, bad right now. You know, there's some reports that in Camden, they did something like this. I don't know if they called it defund the police, but they kind of restructured the way that policing works there. And it, it seems to have affected crime, I suppose. But um, but I strongly feel that every municipality is different. You know, every municipality has different needs and there's a different relationship that the police have with the different places. So looking for a national type of thing here, I don't know is the way to go, but re-examining the relationship of what the police are supposed to be doing, you know, in relation to the community, I think is a healthy thing to be examining. You know, the Democrats running on the slogan, defund the police, I think is a horrible thing to do. You know, Democrats, please don't, please don't go out of your way to make this election easier for Trump. You know, let's be smart about this. We can, you know, you can be smart about reforms that are needed without having to put a slogan that requires way too much explanation. I think both of those things can happen. We can be smart about that, you know. And the fact of the matter is, you know, police do need reform. You know, this is, everybody knows this for a while. And by the way, some reform has been done. And let me just say this too. There's a relationship between the police and the community that we know is, is fucked up in many ways. But there are many places where people really are working on this. Let's be cognizant of this. You guys have to know there are many black police chiefs out there. There are black mayors out there. And I don't want their efforts to be diminished in this. And I don't want the importance of their positions to be diminished. Because, by the way, here's what happened. Those people are trying to do their best to heal this. And it's not easy because many times they're caught in the middle as a black person, as a correction officer, right? They're caught in the middle. You know, what is their allegiance to? And, you know, their allegiance should be, as far as I'm concerned, to the Constitution of the United States. Right. Um, all persons are due due process. You know, you are not allowed to be killed in the street, to be executed in the street. But many times the black people are brought in to be the racial janitors. You know, like I always felt Obama was brought in to be the head racial janitor of the country. Like, why do we still have racism? Didn't we elect Obama? He's not our fucking janitor. <laughs> you know, he's the president. And as Issa said, because I want all black people to win, I want to be careful about this relationship coming up. You know, I think um, it'll be interesting to look at what happens coming up, you know, but part of me is a little cynical because we're in an election year in terms of what can get done. But man, crazy stuff is going on. Did you, I don't know if you guys saw what's going on in Seattle. There's like, I don't know if it's all of Seattle, but part of Seattle that's like taken over by some protesters or something where they shut down the police department. That's crazy. You know, they're like occupying it, you know. Um, we'll keep an eye and see what happens with that uh, coming up. But something did happen recently that I think is a huge, huge step forward. And this is something that I do believe we may want to look at nationally as a thing. And that is Brianna's law. Brianna's law, which was just passed in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and it prevents, 
I want to get my word straight here. It prevents um, a no-knock warrant by the police. Uh, for you that don't know the story, of course, Brianna Taylor, who lived in, I believe this is in Louisville, the police came in with a no-knock warrant where they just bust into the house that so they use like a battering ram. By the way, this is the story of the 80s in South Central Los Angeles. Um, busted in on some kind of drug warrant or something. Uh, and by the way, the person they were looking for, they already had in custody. The person who Brianna was there with, her boyfriend or whoever, he had a gun to defend himself, exercising his Second Amendment rights, by the way. I don't know whether he pulled his gun or shot or the sequence of it, but I know that the police shot Brianna about eight eight times. There were like eight bullets, I think, that wound up in her. I think the, the uh, man did not die. I think he may have been injured or something, but... This woman died in her fucking bedroom, you guys, doing nothing, just being asleep, for Christ's sakes. This whole action of the police to be able to just bust into your house and just kill you is ridiculous. And this happens so many times. This is something that people of color had to worry about for way too long. I mean, for those of you who know the stories of the Black Panthers, we know Fred Hampton, who was one of the um, rising stars, if you will, in the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers uh, were infiltrated by informants uh, to get information about them. J. Edgar Hoover was very concerned about what he called black people rallying around what he called a black messiah. And he made sure that he had informants to sow discord in the Black Panthers to, you know, kind of break them up and all these types of things, you know. Um, there's some, there's a couple of really good documentaries about this, but the story of Fred Hampton is, is horrible. Like the informant who was supposed to be his guard, I think drugged him or something like that the night before he was, he was, uh, real groggy and the police showed up and there was a guard at the door. And when he opened the door, they shot him right in the chest. When he fell, his gun went off and I think went into the ceiling. At least 99 shots were shot by the police to the one shot of the Black Panthers. That were in there. There were several Panthers in there. Fred Hampton, by the way, when they found him, he had been shot maybe in the shoulder or something like that. I think there were two shots, almost an execution-like killing of Fred Hampton. I think they said, is he dead yet? And said, he is now. Um, of course, the report by the police said that they were shooting in defense, that the Panthers shot at them. They actually, there was footage of some of the bullet holes and they said those were the bullet holes by the Panthers. Of course, later, it was found that it was not, that they were completely lying. And if not for, you know, the dedication of people looking for justice, you know, we'd never know that the lies that were said about things like that were actually lies, you know. In the Breonna Taylor case, they actually put on a report, <laughs> just just a lie, <laughs> just a lie, you know, of... Look, I just have to say that this uh, passing Brianna's law to me is such a long time coming. And to me, I think it is uh, something that absolutely we should look at nationally. So that's a good thing. So anyhow, that's kind of um, kind of my take for what's going on right now. Like I said, we have uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is going to talk about uh, 1619 Project. And uh, she's coming up right after this.
Hey, if you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Well, thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer and complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. And you'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. And in celebration of Men's Health Month, Roman is offering $20 off any new treatment during the month of June. So go to GetRoman.com slash Larry for $20 off any new treatments and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Larry. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. Okay, welcome back. Um, Man, I'm really, really uh, excited to have this next person on, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine and, man, the timely creator of the landmark 1619 Project. And if guys not only read it, but you have to listen to the podcast, it's really good. Nicole Hannah-Jones on Black in the Air. Hey, Nicole, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. Thanks so much. Uh, I mean, we're doing this. We're in this whole new world where we can, you know, have people in different places of the world right now. Are you in Brooklyn right now? Where are you? I exactly? am. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Best borough in New York City. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it all depends which one you're in at the time. I would think <laughs> when it comes to New York. You know. Uh, so how? First of all, how's it going? How are you doing there in Brooklyn? How's it going out there? Uh, Brooklyn is good. You know, there's Mm -hmm. uh, protests here just about or actually every day. Um, This is Uh a community that uh, is used to protest. And that's um, true. (laughs) So, yeah, Brooklyn is good. We're, We're doing what we do. They usually protest about artists and cheese and that kind of stuff, too. So this is good for Brooklyn. You know, they get to have, a you know, a nice meaty protest here, which is nice. Yeah, well, and I live in in Bed-Stuy, and Bed-Stuy has, you know, long been uh, kind of a a Black nationalist hotbed. So there's a long tradition here of Black resistance and Black protests and Black arts movement. So, um, yeah, folks are are leading the way. Yeah. What is your take on what's happening right now? Um, Have you been in any of the protests yourself or any of that? Have you been watching or... Yeah, I've just been watching. Uh, I have not really been leaving my house since lockdown. I I have taken it seriously. I I have taken COVID as seriously as this, too, Uh, just because I feel like I'm probably one of the vulnerable groups, you know. Exactly. Um, Not taking any chances with my family and everything. Uh, Has it has it surprised you uh, the the breadth of the protests and everything? I mean, it's pretty global, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I think anyone who would say they're not surprised is not being honest. Uh, right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very. Some people say cynical. I would say realistic about race struggle, but yeah. certainly um, that they've lasted this long, that they've been in all fifty states, that mm-hmm. uh, you know they're they're happening all across the country. We're in uh, New York, like the tenth straight day of yeah. uh, protest rally. So yeah, I'm I'm I am really surprised. Um, and, and I think it speaks to a lot of things. I, I think it speaks mm-hmm. to clearly the political moment that we're in uh, with who's mm-hmm. in the White House. Uh, it speaks to um, 
really the, the, the hardship of the pandemic. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think people are just generally kind of fed up with where things are in America. And it's hard to describe what happened to George Floyd as anything else but a lynching. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not one who likes to engage in hyperbole. I think we use the word lynching probably too much. But in sure. this case, um, we watched a man lynched on national television by agent of the state. And uh, I, I think if you have a, a heart as a human being, you should be outraged about that. And, and clearly people are. It's interesting to me because we've seen videos um, before. I remember when I was in the nightly show covering uh, Walter Scott, when he was shot in the back, you know, running away from police or seeing, remember we saw there was the Facebook live of Philando Castile, you know, just sitting in his car in Minnesota, you know, like we've seen videos of, of horrible things before. It's, you know, it may have been the deliberateness of this one that really struck people, you know? Yeah. I, I, I've been talking about this, about how, um, in order for it seems white Americans to truly be sympathetic to our struggle, something absolutely horrifying has to happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fear of black people, particularly black men is so ingrained in our psyche that mm-hmm. we can, we can, we, by we, I mean, America, uh, white people can justify almost anything. So with Walter Scott, oh, it's the adrenaline of the police officer. It was wrong, right. but, you know, you could kind of see it. Philando Castillo, well, he did have a gun, even though uh, he says he had a gun, even though it's a, uh, he had a permitted gun. Well, we can, we can still kind of see right. it. Um, with Eric Garner, well, he was struggling, right? Like, we will come up right. He was selling cigarettes. Right, right, exactly. Like, he should have <laughs> right. just complied, even though he couldn't breathe. Um, sure. But in this case, like, to see... George Floyd face down, not struggling, not moving, begging Mm -hmm. for his life while the officer nonchalantly has his freaking hand in his pocket. It was clear that all of those reasonings that uh, white Americans could could come to in their minds about uh, the fear that led to bad decision making, they were gone. Yeah, it's almost akin to me, you know, when I was a kid, the Vietnam War was on television. It kind of woke people up to kind of the horrors of war firsthand. It didn't have the chance to be filtered. And I remember, uh, I don't remember, but when Walter Cronkite, you know, kind of first showed his distaste with it, LBJ figured, well, if we lost Cronkite, we lost America, you know. And by the same by the same token, when a lot of Americans saw how blacks were treated, you know, in the streets of Birmingham and some of that stuff with the water hoses and things like that, they had never, some many of them, some of them had seen it, but many of them, especially in the North, had never seen that type of, you know, racism. And it kind of woke people up for the first time. This feels like a similar moment, you know, kind of a, a waking up of, you know, of things were happening and the eyes were kind of half closed and now the eyes are finally open. Yeah. yeah the, the thing that I thought um, after this video and, and I, I haven't seen the whole thing. I, I couldn't watch the whole thing. Um, it's pretty bad. I've watched it. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, bad. It's just I, I couldn't do it, um, though. I understand why people felt that they should. Um, is I was like, this is, this was the the classic overplaying of your hand. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened during the civil rights movement. Uh, as we know, mm-hmm. black Americans were being beaten, brutalized, killed uh, for decades in the South when right. they were trying to protest. Mm-hmm. And um, the violent kept getting ratchet, ratcheting up and 
um, you know, white officials down there became so recalcitrant. They were like, we don't care if we're being filmed right now. We're still going to sick these dogs on these children. We're going to water hose these people. We don't care. And it was it was the getting away with it so long that you thought you would just keep getting away with it. And we all know the more you get away with something, the more you do it, the worse you get. And Mm -hmm. that's what happened here with law enforcement. Law enforcement had been getting away with the taking of black life for so long. And it didn't seem to matter how egregious it was that uh, that officer felt completely comfortable knowing he was being filmed to lay on the neck of a man who was begging for his life for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And, and, and this was a case where they just, it finally went too far. Um, but I think that's the thing that also makes me so angry mm-hmm. how much we have accepted until finally uh, someone goes too far. And yeah. now we're like, Oh my God, we can't, this can't, we can't accept this in America. We've been accepting this. Yeah. And I, I agree completely. And what people don't realize is that, this is the extreme of the behavior with the, the story is all the humiliations that black men have had to suffer by the police that didn't even involve death, but just in complete humiliation and treated less than human. You know, I remember as a kid the our neighbor's house, the police, I don't know, they were there for whatever reason, uh, kicked in the door and said, freeze nigga dead. You know, I was like seven years old and I heard someone in authority saying those words, nigga and dead, like right back and probably saying nigga, I'm saying nigga, you know, right. But back and hearing that as a kid, like that, I mean, I can't even tell you what that did to me, you know, that they would, and knowing that that's exactly what's going to happen. They're telling you exactly what they intend to do and what that does to, to a person. It's just for them. It's, it's, I am reminding you of what our relationship is. Yes. And I mean, I'll push back on that just a little. It's not just black men and boys. Um, We've seen plenty of videos of black girls and black women being brutalized by police, being punched by police, being thrown down by police. Uh, I can you know, we live, uh, as I said, I live in Bed-Stuy. It's a low income, though gentrifying black neighborhood. And my child, who is growing up in a household of a New York Times writer, uh, educated, good income, her feelings about the police are not good because we look out our window and she sees the daily interactions that our community members have with the police. She's almost never seen an interaction that was positive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, neighbors stopped in question, neighbors uh, had their bags going through, sprawled up against uh, the wall. I was having a a party a few years back. It was, I hold these salons at my house for writers and it was just, you know, a laundry list of, of who's who of black writers. And the police come to my house and said, <laughs> um, there was a, um, you know, those uh, shot detectors that they have on the light pole. They have these, these devices that if someone shoots, it's supposed to pinpoint where wow. the gunshots are coming from. I, yeah, well, you know, in the hood, we're under all kinds of like constant <laughs> surveillance. We really yes. are. Um, the problem is they don't work. They're, they're terrible. So mm-hmm. I guess somewhere, somewhere around uh, one of those detectors went off and the police come to my house and said, we got noticed that uh, someone was shooting from your house. I literally am a party of like New Yorker, New York Times, sure. Atlantic writers. And they're like, and I'm like, no, there, there was nothing, you know, nothing happened at my house. And they're like, yes, someone was shooting from this house and we need to come search your house. Uh-huh. So I'm like, absolutely not. You're not coming in to search our house. And this is 
I promise you the exact wrong place that you want to try to do this. Um, and the white officer tells me, see, this is why, this is why you guys have so much crime in this community because you guys don't want to cooperate with the police. Mm. And I said, you came to my house disrespectfully and you treat us all like criminals. And that's why we don't want to cooperate with the police. And then the black officer was with him, finally just pulled him away and, and they went on about your business. But these interactions are so common. And that's what I say, like white Americans until recently when they started getting, you know, their asses beat uh, protesting with black people uh, by police did not realize the type of everyday policing that black Americans experience and that it looks almost nothing like the uh, policing that they experience and that you can be a perfectly law abiding citizen. Um, and my child doesn't want to deal with police, not because of mm -hmm. anything I've told her, but just because of what she has observed uh, in her own life. Yeah. You wrote a interesting article, I think back in 2016, the grief that white Americans can't share after I think it was after the death of Philando Castillo or, or Alton Sharp, I think it was. Yeah, they were back um, to back. Yeah, that's right. Um, oh, God, I still remember that. It's so vivid. Um, do you still feel that way or is that changing now? No, I, I still absolutely feel that way. I, I'm mm -hmm. not saying arguing that white Americans can't have empathy for what we're going through. They mm -hmm. certainly can. Because certainly but... there's a huge swath of people of all races that, like in this moment, are, are, are feeling empathetic, I think. Yes, but empathy is different mm -hmm. than grief. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there are studies on this that shows yes, that's the, that's the long-term right, yeah. long effects that, uh, that Black people feel when someone mm -hmm. is killed by the police. Um, yeah. We feel a deep uh, uh, mourning and connection that is not yeah. kind of this outsider, like, yeah, all of us can have empathy um, when people are being hurt. But for us, it is a very personal and mm -hmm. deep and ongoing generational grief. And, and I think, um, I think that is very hard for people to share. I, I, I think the example I give is, um, white Americans probably felt that with 9-11, this like grief that was not about your own, but, but connected to your identity, um, mm -hmm. and understanding that people were doing something to you just because of your identity and that kind of collective grief. But I don't think that that is a, uh, familiar feeling for them in the way that it is for black Americans and particularly right. not when it's coming from our own government and institutions. Yes. For different, for, for non-blacks, it has to be connected to something culturally for them that was specific. Certainly that's right. Jews with anti-Semitism, you know, they're very connected by the horrors of, of that. Cause that of course has been going on for centuries too. Or yes. even if you talk to Armenians, you know, just some of the genocides that have happened, uh, in Europe and that kind of stuff, particularly like in Turkey, like you can, I have a lot of Armenian friends and you cannot bring up like Turks at all. You know, I mean, it's raw, you know, that feeling when something happens. Um, uh, so what we're, let's talk about 1619 because 1619 ironically, and it's so funny because, and when I think about it, the irony is you can write this in any time frame and it'll be relevant because something's going to happen that's going to make it relevant. But it's ex it's extremely timely now because I think um, having a timeline and a history for people to view these things not as a one off, because a lot of times I think when non-whites see these incidents, which you point out too, they see it as an incident, whereas they, they see it as a as a as a story that's happening now, but we see it as another chapter in this huge book, you know, for us, it's a chapter for them. It's an individual story. You know, uh, what was your impetus for writing the 1619 project? 
Yeah, so I think uh, what I was trying to do with the 1619 Project is is exactly push back against that narrative that um, that what we're seeing today is, you know, there's a belief in America that uh, slavery was a long time ago. It's not connected to anything that we see today. We all have the same rights and privileges. And mm-hmm. I wanted to draw very clear lines to the America we see today in ways mm-hmm. that would be surprising uh, to a typical American and connect that back to slavery and really show how foundational slavery is not just to our founding, which we also try to marginalize slavery historically, but also Mm -hmm. to uh, the institutions we have today, um, to who we are as Americans. And uh, it was really important to me that the project not be just a history, that it be about modern America, and that we were going to take these surprising things like traffic, uh, capitalism, why Mm -hmm. we're the only Western industrialized country without universal health care. Health care draw those connections um, very clearly through Mm -hmm. historiography back to slavery. Um, Mm -hmm. And really the impetus was it in some ways it's, it's what I've been trying to do with my reporting and writing my entire career is Mm -hmm. use history to explain um, the racial inequality we see today. Uh, And then of course, with the 400th anniversary, I just had this really strong sense that most Mm -hmm. Americans had never heard of the year 1619 and that like so much about the black experience, that anniversary, that 400th anniversary is going to pass with almost no recognition or acknowledgement and no national kind of reckoning around what that meant. And, you know, I I have the largest journalism platform in the world and uh, Mm -hmm. decided to use it to try to force that that reckoning. Um, And I've been really surprised in the protests how often I'm seeing the year 1619 and 400 mm-hmm. years being referenced um, and connected in a way that, you know, during Ferguson, uh, during uh, Baltimore, you weren't seeing these direct connections being made to slavery and to this 400 uh, year uh, struggle. But that certainly is what we're seeing um, on signs and in conversations all over the country. And even the um, the, the the taking down and uh, destroying of these monuments to white supremacy. We didn't see that before uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, people are defacing General Lee statues. They're cutting off the head of uh, Christopher Columbus. Uh, I don't know where, but someone just threw Christopher Columbus in the river, um, taking, oh down, <laughs> taking down the statue of the racist mayor of Philadelphia, like, you know, all of these uh, icons to white supremacy that have been accepted and that Black people have been fighting against for decades, uh, they're suddenly falling now. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. certainly different um, than what we saw with uh, other protests in the recent past. Yeah, you uh, mentioned that um, uh, slavery, like it's always been compartmentalized in the founding of the country, as you say, almost like, yeah, it wasn't really thought about <laughs> or ignored, but you'd make an opposite argument. You say, uh, in fact, many would argue that the country was not founded as a democracy, but a slaveocracy. Do you want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even um, uh, James McPherson, one of the, the historians who kind of opposed the project, has said that America was one of a handful of actual slave societies, mm-hmm. um, that there are uh, there were lots of countries and nations that practice slavery, but yeah, not America where, didn't invent it. We just did it the best, you know, right? But not, you know, <laughs> there haven't been a lot of societies that were actually built by around the institution of slavery and where uh, power was concentrated so heavily in the slave owning class. And America clearly was that what we treat as incidental, um, 
was not incidental. 10 of our first 12 presidents were enslavers. Uh, the writer of the Declaration was an enslaver. The writer of the Constitution was an enslaver. Um, almost half of the, who, the men we call our founding fathers got their wealth and power from owning other human beings, and they drafted a constitution that protected the institution of slavery. So much of our uh, political system, as well as our systems of wealth and capitalism, were built around slavery. And yet, it's so contradictory to the idea of America, of, you know, this country being founded on these radical ideas of universal equality, that we've had to marginalize it in the American story. And we've had to pretend that it was not foundational to the United States, but it, it clearly was. And, and they understood that it was. Um, and, and what I hear a lot uh, is this pushback that, well, you know, the founding fathers were really opposed to slavery, but they just had to compromise with the South. As if the South is not part of the country, as if Madison mm -hmm. and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were not Southerners, right? right. The, the South was the base of the uh, economy of, of our country. But what that's also meant is the story of Black people and the contribution of Black people and the realities of Black Americans has had to have been, it, it is very inconvenient. And so we have also had to bury that history because Black people more than any other group are the constant reminder of that lie at our founding. We get uh, slavery, which is usually, you know, a couple paragraphs. And then we fast right, forward 100 right. years to the March on Washington. Yes. And that's it. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, you even draw, which is interesting because I had, hadn't really thought of this, is, um, well, part of the irony and the hypocrisy is that England was changing faster in its relationship to slavery than America was. And, and the argument is partly an economic one, as well as these other reasons that part of the reason why America could claim its independence was the money it was making via slavery, <laughs> you know, yes. was the slave economy, you know, which is kind of interesting that if England had declared, you know, that slaves could be free, America would not have had the ability probably to claim its independence from England at the time. Yeah. So this was definitely one of those um, parts of the I mean, project. That's, I've never heard this argument. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, I think I should have been more prepared for the blowback. I kind of dropped that bomb <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> I dropped no, that bomb. I was like, bomb, what? Yeah, yeah, in the middle of my essay and didn't realize, right. because for me, I was like, of course, but I, I didn't realize like how controversial that would be and how uh -huh. much uh, historians of early America have also worked to protect this founding yes. narrative, right? Like there's a reason the field of early America is so white. When you're burying a lime, you have to build a myth. You know, yes, in order absolutely. To bury that lime. You can't just and, and we're it. taught yeah. that like historians are just you know ob objective purveyors of, of of the past, interpreters of the past, but that's that's clearly never been true. Um, it speaks to you know the revolution was about a lot of things. We're taught sure. it's a, a narrative about one thing, but it was. A, a revolution about a lot of things and colonists, depending on where they were, had different motivations. Uh, another motivation for some revolutionaries was uh, England had said they, they could not keep taking native land and encroaching on native land and they wanted to expand. So they want, needed to be free from England to uh, expand on native lands. Uh, uh -huh. Britain certainly was uh, starting to have some abolitionist sentiment, though there's also a whitewashing of that because a lot sure. of that sentiment was coming because black people kept rebelling in the um, West Indian colonies and it was becoming very costly and dangerous to try to keep enslaving people who kept rising up against you. 
And certainly black people in the 13 colonies were also uh, rising up constantly against uh, their oppressors, which were, were kind of taught that black people were just passive uh, actors just waiting for white mm-hmm. people to determine their fate, but but they weren't. Um, and this was a big fear during the period of the revolution was Britain was stirring up insurrection and enslaved mm-hmm. people were taking advantage. Racism has always been our kind of national security Achilles heel. And it happens again and again where foreign powers use our issues with race and racism uh, to exploit and divide. And that certainly happened in the period of the revolution. So there were some colonists in Georgia, in South Carolina and Virginia who weren't really they were landed gentry. They weren't really interested in fighting a rebellion against England. Their lives uh, are good. They were living, they were living great. The system was Mm -hmm. working for them, but it wasn't until they began to believe that England was telling black people, if you fight on our side, we'll free you, uh, that Mm. some of them decided to join the revolution. And we're just simply not taught that history because it's not a convenient narrative for, uh, who we want to believe we are. Yeah. And, you know, as with everything, there are many layers to things because in the, in the lead up to the civil war, you had many whites who were abolitionists and completely who believed in, I would say the the freedom of blacks more so than the equality of blacks. You know, those are two separate issues, you know, which kind of uh, lead us up to Lincoln, who's more complicated than people realize. Wouldn't you say so? Everyone is, though, right? (laughs) This speaks to the way that we're we're taught history. We need to have our heroes. uh, We need to have our villains. And uh, my daughter, who's 10, asks me all the time. Well, now she's also kind of obsessed. So she'll be like, did he enslave people? Was he racist? And was Uh he good or bad? And was he good or bad? And I tell her all the time, there's few people who it's are all good or all bad, right? Yeah, Most of us have all of these tendencies. And Lincoln, certainly, that was the case. Uh, he was opposed to slavery, um, not opposed enough to think that he should end it himself, um, mm-hmm. didn't want uh, a, the, to get in the Civil War, and certainly didn't want the Civil War to be seen as being about ending slavery. Um, he was yeah, willing to compromise pri- slavery. His primary duty, I feel, was to preserve the union. Well, yeah, he was explicit term. about yes. that. I mean, he exactly. has, you know, that famous quote, if I could uh, save the union without freeing a single slave, I'll do it. That's and right. if I have to save the union by freeing all the slaves, I'll do that. So he really yeah. wanted to maintain the union. At, and he also clearly didn't believe in black equality. There's a big space between saying you shouldn't be able to buy and sell human beings on the block and saying these people should be treated as our uh, political and social equals. And Lincoln did Mm -hmm. not believe in that, but he also was being pushed. And and again, this Mm -hmm. is why the way we're taught history is really so uh, egregious is uh, Frederick Douglass and other black abolitionists were pushing Lincoln to the left and they were pushing Lincoln to offer black people the franchise saying, you know, these black soldiers won the war, white soldiers had stopped signing up for the army when they realized that it was becoming a war about slavery. There were draft riots in New York because uh, white Northerners were getting upset that they were being sent to war uh, for Black people. And he Mm -hmm. has to finally allow Black people to serve in um, in the Union Army in order to truly save the Union. We don't get credit for that. And so mm-hmm. while he didn't believe that black people should have the franchise because he didn't believe that black men uh, should have political equality, Frederick Douglass is pushing him and saying, these people fought and saved the union. You have to do this. So he was also a man who changed. And I think we shouldn't yeah. ever look at our historical figures as stagnant. Um, right. 
all of us, hopefully, uh, are changing. And he was a very intelligent and astute man, and his needs are changing as well. Yeah, the Lincoln-Douglas relationship to me is very much like the LBJ-King relationship, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. where the the push that Douglas gave to Lincoln and to get him to that Gettysburg Address and to get him to pass the Emancipation Proclamation and understanding that you, you can't save the union, you have to create a new union, which is what That's Douglas right. was pushing him to do. You, something new has to be created out of this. And then Lincoln used that language, you know, in in his speech and everything. Absolutely. But, uh, but and what's interesting too, is in that meeting that you talk about with Douglas and the others where Lincoln proposes sending, you know, the, what we should do here is, <laughs> is get some votes and send all the black people to Central America was, this was an yeah. actual proposal that people don't know about. And you can yes. just imagine the looks on the faces of Douglas and the others, you know, when they heard this. Absolutely. So this mm-hmm. is, you know, right at the, the period This is history where- that's not taught. You're not. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. every black person is taught one thing about Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, right? Yeah. Like, let's go buy a Lincoln. Come on, let's go buy a Lincoln. He freed if there the were three pictures on black people's wall, it would be Kennedy, Lincoln, and King, and Jesus. Okay, four. Um, yeah. Black Jesus, you mean, right? Well, I don't know. But if, if, I feel like if you have uh, Kennedy and Lincoln on your wall, it's probably white Jesus. Um, <laughs> but oh, the thing is, great. like, he was complicated. So mm-hmm. when he's getting ready to offer or, or considering issuing the proclamation, he's like, if I issue this proclamation, we will suddenly have four million black people who were never intended to be citizens of this country, who we never intended to be anything but uh, Mm -hmm. enslaved laborers who have their liberty and freedom. So what are we going to do with this population that he called a troublesome presence? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he invites these black abolitionists who had been pushing for him to to use the war to end slavery. And he tells Mm -hmm. them, I'm going to free your people. And then I need y'all to get the hell up out this country. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what he tells you. You don't have to go home. But you, you got to get the hell up out, out of here, here. right? Yeah. And so he told them, like, I've secured funding from Congress and we will ship you yeah, somewhere else serious. where you can be free. And, and, and probably the thing that bothered me most about that speech was he blamed Black people for the Civil War. He said, if you weren't here, we wouldn't be fighting this war as if Black mm. people chose to come here and be enslaved. Um, And now we need you to go from the country that you built, Um, which has basically kind of been the theme uh, our entire time that we've been here. I'm sure you have gotten a a few letters occasionally from people telling you, if you don't like it here, go back to Africa. Uh, Um, It's it's more more than letters. (laughs) I've had had death threats. Mm. Yeah. So it's Mm -hmm. like that, that common theme that uh, we're not fully American. We're not citizens um, that we can be, uh, put out of our own country. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's what Lincoln was was arguing, is that you will never be able to live freely here. Uh, white Americans have too much animosity towards you, and you mm-hmm. have too many hurt feelings towards us, so we'll free you, and then we need to go. And of course, Black people say, hell no, like, we're, we're not leaving. And we yeah. didn't. And like we do so many times, it's the fighting, the willingness of Blacks fighting in the, in the Civil War, and the example that they set, you know, because people thought it would be a disaster, but it wasn't you know, uh, really kind of changed Lincoln's thinking there, as you were pointing out, too. Yes. You know, uh, and now we get into a period post-war that another period that a lot of people don't know about and all the gains that were made. You had a Civil Rights Act of 1866, I think. Six. Or yep. 1866, followed by 
13th Amendment, followed by the 14th Amendment, followed by the 15th Amendment, you know, yes. like a lot of progress was made uh, with the blacks in this country that I think uh, a lot of people don't know about, too. Let's talk about that first and then let's get into the resistance. You know? Yeah. So the period of Reconstruction um, was completely erased from national memory, except to say that it was a complete uh, failure. And yes. that was an uh, intentional work of a group of historians uh, known as the Dunning School that mm-hmm. after the end of slavery and they, these were uh, Princeton, uh, one of them, Dunning was a Princeton historian. So these are not Southerners. Um mm-hmm who for this sense of national reunification really decide they're going to downplay slavery uh, and they're going to downplay what happens in the period of reconstruction and make it look like, you know, black people needed to be enslaved and um, that if you allow black people to rule, you will have chaos. Uh, But the period of reconstruction was actually uh, this remarkable time in American history. It is breathtaking. I mean, there were, (laughs) I remember the first time I saw pictures of black legislatures and I was mm-hmm. like, wait, what? Like two yeah, days after slavery, yeah. right? There were black mm-hmm. people uh, in the Senate, in yeah. Congress, in uh, local and state legislatures. Right. Um, the South gets public education because mm-hmm. formerly enslaved people are pushing uh, the first like public taxation system for public schools. The most liberal uh, agenda in the South gets passed in these, these mm-hmm. biracial reconstruction governments. It's really this amazing time. And, you know, every, every American who is a citizen is a citizen because of black people's uh, push after the end of uh, the civil, or excuse me, after the end of the civil war for the 14th amendment, 14th amendment grants birthright citizens. So if your family immigrated here from another place, your automatic citizenship came out of slavery and the push of, of formerly enslaved people to be recognized constitutionally as citizens. But we don't get credit really for any of that. Uh, the Voting Rights Act, which grants universal suffrage for men, um, that doesn't just impact black men, that impacts all men. The 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, there had never before in American law uh, been a recognition of equality before the law until the mm-hmm. 14th Amendment. So It's the first time equal appears in the Constitution. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also the first time, the 13th Amendment is also the first time slavery uh, appears in the Constitution oh, yes. as well. <laughs> yes, that's uh, Yes, it's <laughs> cleverly talked about in, exactly. uh, in flowery yeah. language. Yes. Lots of euphemism, mm-hmm. but the 13th Amendment ends a practice that the Constitution uh, apparently doesn't ever mention even as it codifies it. So mm-hmm. when you look at the... Um, you know, the, the gay marriage case that goes before the Supreme Court a few years ago, oh, they're using uh-huh. the 14th Amendment right. Equal Protection Clause, um, which has been used to grant every marginalized group who has been granted constitutional rights has been granted those under the Reconstruction Amendments. So it is, this, it's amazing time, but it, it lasts, you know, a blink of eye, 12 years. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, white Northerners make a compromise for national unity And that compromise means they will withdraw protection of the formerly enslaved um, in the South and leave the South uh, to its own devices. And white uh, people quickly retake government. There are coups happening all across the South. There is uh, murders of hundreds of black people and uh, white Republicans trying to vote down there. And uh, we go into what W.E.B. Du Bois called the Great Nadir which is uh, we re-enter into a quasi-slavery that will last another 100 years. 
And when a lot of people don't realize this was a systematic thing that happened on several fronts. It happened legislatively. It happened through terror, you know, Uh, and it also happened through myth making of reimagining, you know, the history that people just seen with their own eyes. I was just going to say the first feature film in America is Birth of the Nation. Mm -hmm. It is not incidental that the very first feature film in the world is a story about redemption when uh, white Southerners uh, banish the uh, black Republican legislatures and retake the South for, um, you know, white Americans. Uh, that is the first like, first feature length film. And then the highest grossing film of all time in this country is Gone with the Wind. That uh, explains everything about the way that uh, art, science, literature, all coalesce around uh, white supremacy and reinforce it, what is being done in the political system. It is also being reinforced in popular culture. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, um, it's the power of myth, as Joseph Campbell so clear, <laughs> you know, said first. But uh, the myth was so strong. And Birth of a Nation is an interesting moment because as far as I'm concerned, Gone with the Wind, the work is already done at that point, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. You know, but Birth of a Nation is interesting because um, the moving image was in his infancy and people, I don't know if they realized the power of the moving image at that time to shape ideas and to shape opinion and that kind of stuff. And just a little history about Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation was based on a play called The Klansman mm-hmm. that was put on. And the NAACP at the time actually had the Klansman banned from being performed in Boston. The, the mayor there was very sympathetic to the black community because they were bringing in they helped him get into office. Just how power the ballot box can be in getting things done, you know. So the original title of Birth of a Nation was called The Klansman. Uh, but when they were met with resistance from NAACP, they changed it to The Birth of a Nation. And uh, when it was screened in the White House for Woodrow Wilson, his imprimatur on that film kind of made it impossible to ban that film, which yep. from then on became the myth for people to to just believe in as true. And it resurrects the Klan. So the Klan had been largely stamped out. There were uh, there was a series of legislation during Reconstruction called the Klan Acts uh, mm-hmm. that had pretty much uh, forced the Klan out of business. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, birth of the nation, the way that it portrayed the Klan or the White Knights of the Camellia or whatever the hell it was called, um, as vindicating the White South leads to this massive resurgence of the Klan all across the country. Right. Um, so again, you know, we have politics, but uh, pop culture is very influential uh, in racial ideology and acceptance of uh, racist ideology in America then and now, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so it is great. I'm so happy that your project is here to give people kind of, and your essay in particular, you know, I mean, it is a history lesson. I mean, people need to hear these things too, you know, uh, was there anything that was surprising that you discovered going through this whole thing for yourself personally? Uh, yeah, I think the most surprising thing I discovered was a sense of patriotism. (laughs) I never, I've never, uh, I can ever remember feeling uh, patriotic. Yeah. And um, when I just, when I decided Isn't that to do funny? this. It's so ironic. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm like your dad, by the way, I've always flown the flag at my house ah. and, and I've always had these complicated feelings, but I've always, I've wanted to be proud to be an American. I've always felt that way, but I always felt America, you got some issues, but yeah. you're not going you're not going to get me out of here. We're going to work on these issues, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've never felt mm-hmm. I was going to leave because, uh, 
where would I go? And, and I, I've always felt like this is, this is definitely our country, but not uh, proud um, to claim it, mostly in opposition to it. And when I, when I pitched the essay or conceived of the essay, the essay was really about how Black people have, um, you know, been, as I argue, the perfectors of democracy, how our role through our resistance has been to uh, force this country to live up to its democratic ideals. Um, but I didn't feel a sense of patriotism uh, in that that is our identity. And it was in doing all of this reading um, of Black people generation after generation, you know, from the 1700s forward, um, not just not just working in opposition, but claiming the mantle of like, this is our country. We, we are going to force, we believe in these ideas. You may not, but we do. Um, and you can't force us to leave. Our ancestors' blood and bones are in this soil. It really did change something in me. Uh, uh-huh. And I'm not talking about the flag pin wearing, uh, sure. knee-jerk patriotism. And certainly I think patriotism is uh, believing in a better country than what you have and uh-huh. working... Um, to get that. But the ideals, I mean, our, our, our country was corrupt at its founding, but the ideals are pure and the ideals are right. And uh, yeah, that, that's the most surprising thing. When the, the day the essay ran, I got like three texts from my black friends who were like, damn, I might have to get an American flag now. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think any of them actually did. Uh, and I'm certainly not flying one outside of my house because I don't believe in those kind of outward displays of patriotism personally for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. But to even, you know, that it would somehow be a radical thing that a people who have been in a place for 400 years can feel liberated to claim their own country, mm-hmm. I think speaks to uh, the experience of, of what it's like to be Black. And it, it was uh, very fulfilling to me that Black people would even feel like, oh, I actually can claim this country. And now I have the facts to back up. You know, we always say we built this, but we didn't necessarily have the facts of how. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this project provided that uh the facts that people could actually argue. Yeah, and it gave black people the receipts to prove that yes. they have ownership. <laughs> that's right. That's you right. Know, I think that's where pride of country comes in is when blacks are aware of their contribution to this country, you know, yes. that they have the right of ownership as other people. And that's where pride comes from. And that's where exactly w- wanting to make something better and the desire to do that comes out of the pride of that. Cause I've always said, you know, uh, I don't get too hung up on the imperfection of the founding fathers. I, I realized the whole world was like that at that time. It's not like they were unique, you know. Um, but but we pretend that they were not. There lies the problem, right? Because we yeah. were unique in that none of those other countries that practiced slavery were founded on the ideas of innate and individual liberty uh, right. bestowed on us by God. They 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 all the other countries were like, no, we're not equal. You're not equal. Your status or your birth makes you not yes. equal. But we. But, follows those ideas. And that does make us unique because I think it made us uniquely hypocritical. But it was also those words that gave us the ability for transformation because we use those words to make a case for 14th Amendment and these things. So that's what I mean. It's like you shouldn't have written those words if you didn't if you didn't want this to happen. You should have said all white men are created equal. It's not my fault Mm -hmm. that you said all men are created equal. That's right. You know, and that's what I mean. It's like the the intention of this document for what it was, you know, parochially, let's say, opened up a world for all of these things to happen. In the same way the 14th Amendment, first as in the intention was for black slaves, yes, you know, and newly freed black people who really had no status 
you know, they were free, but with no status, you know, that's right. opens, opens the door for everything from gay marriage to the ERA to everything, you know, that's right. It's kind of interesting. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, Nicole. <laughs> What's going to happen now? Do you think actual change is going to happen now that people will be able to feel and sense? What do you, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? What, where are you at in the, some of those things? I'm realistic. Um, realistic. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to predict the future, but I will say, uh, <laughs> based on my study of the past, there will be some change, but uh, mm-hmm. not much, not sustained and not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm of, I'm always of it. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been around long enough to to have seen some change in my lifetime. It's been certainly different than my parents' lifetime, you know. Um, and I think generations do have different kind of outlooks on this. So we'll see, you know, it could be a generational thing that happens also. I think there is a bevy of young people that, just have a completely different outlook and opinion on this than generations yeah. before. Yeah, but you then know. they'll get older and they turn into their parents. That's what the data shows. So, I mean, we've been <laughs> we've been hearing we just got to wait for the old racist mm-hmm. guard to die off for like uh, eight decades, and they die off, and then the new generation becomes the the old generation. So, I'll push back on that. They're not replacing the same numbers. I don't think that's true. If you really honestly took a time machine to the 1950s, it is unrecognizable to to what it is today there are aspects that we compare to the 1950s south the i would say no, the 1950s, 1950s north, north is, too. my parents are from chicago trust me and chicago know. remains the most segregated city in the country the school district is as segregated as it was when your parents were there black kids are segregated as they were yeah <laughs> there is a segregated they are, were in the 1970s black wealth has been stagnant for 70 years so yeah there's certainly and They're some at, progress, yes, but exactly. uh, I guess I feel like when your people's existence in this country outdates nearly everyone else, the time for marking in- incremental progress is long gone. When do we actually have some actual equality? Um, so, yes, yeah, you know, it is about perspective, but to say things are somewhat better 150 years after the end of slavery. Well, well, I, I will say this. I will say this. When I say that things are better, it's the institutional um, roadblocks that are gone. But now there there needs to be other means by which people can can get equality, you know, yes. because there's so much that legislation can do. But, you know, it's not like, you know, there's not the, the same types of things that legislation can do. We need other means by which to achieve these things. Yeah. Um, massive redistribution of wealth. We could start there. Well, that's a whole different argument. <laughs> <laughs> Or the opportunity of wealth creation, you know, is another way to look at it, too. I will take the opposite point of view of that. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, Nicole, thank you so much uh, for being with me. Uh, 1619 Project, man, like I said, you know, so timely. And that's just an understatement where I can say congrats on some really good work there. Thank you. I'm wishing you the best and everything. Keep safe there in Brooklyn. I will. You stay safe as well. Okay, thanks for joining me. Nicole Hannah-Jones, everybody. 